Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week. And I guarantee you, you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. This week, we're talking about one of the most beloved predators on the planet. And when you think about the impact that climate change can have on an animal, this might be one of the first species that you think of. Luckily, I got to sit down with Dr. Andrew DeRoche, a professor of biological sciences at the University of Alberta. He's spent decades researching these animals, so I can't wait for you guys to hear what he has to say. So make sure you're all bundled up, because we're heading to the Arctic to talk about polar bears. Polar bears can be found in the Arctic, northern Russia and North America, and in parts of Greenland, too. But one place where polar bears don't live is Antarctica, or the South Pole. And penguins only live in Antarctica, which is why penguins and polar bears never interact in the wild. Polar bears have that characteristic white fur that covers their bodies, which is different from any other type of bear. And we're going to talk about some more characteristics that make polar bears unique later on in the episode. And under that fur, their skin is actually black. Some scientists think that they have black skin because it helps them absorb heat from the sun more easily. And there's so much more cool stuff about polar bears that you're going to want to hear. But I'll leave that up to the expert, Andrew DeRoche. Aside from being a professor at the University of Alberta, Andrew has written over 200 peer-reviewed papers. He even wrote a book on polar bears called Polar Bears, A Complete Guide to Their Biology and Behavior. So before we talk about these animals, let's learn a little bit more about Andrew. Yeah, it's uh, it's probably like a lot of things in people's career trajectories. It's a bit of chance and circumstance. And and actually, I was interested in wildlife uh, when I was a small kid. I didn't know that that was actually something you could do for a living. Uh, but I was always interested in being outside. And, you know, I was sort of the kid going around looking at birds and, you know, snakes and stuff like that, whatever you could do. And I grew up in Vancouver on the West Coast of Canada. So, I mean, it was a it was kind of a big city even back then, but there was still a lot of wildlife around. Um, anyways, long and short of it is I, I kind of got interested in um, wildlife as a career, Uh, went to the University of British Columbia, actually finished up a degree in forest biology. So in that part of the world, most wildlife lives in the forest. So it made sense to to go through that program. And uh, when I finished up, I was actually uh, employed for a while studying grizzly bears on the uh, coastal rainforest in mid-BC. And the fellow I was working with said, you know, what are you going to do when the bears go to hibernate, we got to lay you off. 
And I said, I didn't know. And he said, well, I know this guy in in Edmonton and Alberta and, and he studies polar bears. Does that sound interesting? And you know, I was a kid from a temperate rainforest and it sounded kind of exotic. And next thing I knew I was moving to Edmonton. I did a master's and a PhD at the University of Alberta. And uh, the bears just kind of hooked me in and I've been doing it for, I don't know, 39 years or something like that now. If it hadn't been suggested to me as a kid on the West Coast, I never would have thought of going into the Arctic. But, you know, and and it's interesting because the Arctic is kind of one of those places that has either a love-hate relationship for people. Either they get there and are just drawn in or they get there and they never want to go back. I think we're really lucky that grizzly bears hibernate because if they didn't, Andrew might have never been doing his amazing work with polar bears. He's also a biology professor at the University of Alberta. So I asked him how that job has helped him study polar bears. Well, it's interesting. You know, I've had a variety of positions studying polar bears, uh, worked uh, for the Norwegian government for seven years studying polar bears in, um, in the European Arctic. And I came back to Canada to take an academic position. I, I'm an accidental academic. It was never in my plans. Um, but it, it's been an interesting trajectory just in the context that um, it's allowed me a lot of freedom to ask questions that, uh, in a course, uh, in a government setting, you might not be able to ask. And I think one of the great rewards has also been able to, I've been able to work with a lot of people around the world to collaborate with different scientists. Um, and one of the things is to work with graduate students. And I've supervised a lot of uh, students over the years. And what you're really dealing with is the next generation of biologists. And so trying to present them um, opportunities to explore their own ideas and to let them learn a bit more about polar bears as well. And um, that's been a really rewarding thing because they come in with new ideas, new tools. And, you know, I'm kind of old school now. And, and the next generation is really the one that has to deal with the changes that are coming forward. Um, threats like climate change and increased human density uh, in many parts of the range of a whole host of species, but polar bears in particular, are at risk from these sorts of things. It's extremely important to start talking more about climate change because it's already a huge issue that's just going to keep getting worse. And it's interesting because, of course, polar bears have become the sort of iconic species of climate change. And that was really an accident. And, and the reason I say it's an accident is because we had the data to understand polar bear ecology. And that was largely done because polar bears are a harvested species in much of their range. And the science was put in place to monitor population abundance so that the harvest would be sustainable. And, and a lot of this stems from an international agreement we have on polar bears that was put into effect in 1973. And that agreement mandates that the five countries with polar bears under their jurisdiction, they have to actually study and manage polar bears in accordance with the best available science. So what happened is we were monitoring these polar bear populations over time. And then, of course, in the early 90s, climate change started to emerge as an issue. And we examined our data and started to look at it more closely relative to changes in polar bear habitat, which is the sea ice environment. And we could see that the sea ice was changing dramatically. And then we could put the pieces together, polar bear ecology, with the sea ice changes and changes in abundance in some parts of polar bear range. 
And you can see quite convincingly what happens. Um, it's, it's really no different than the story we have for a lot of species, and that's habitat loss. Uh, for polar bears, it's loss of the sea ice. For other species, it's loss of terrestrial habitats. And we're going to talk more about the things that are having an impact on polar bear populations later on in the episode. Polar bears live in some of the most hostile habitats on Earth. So what kinds of adaptations help them survive in their environment? You know, we have to go back in time. We have to think that, of course, they evolved from a grizzly bear ancestor. Um, And so we don't know exactly when they diverged, partly because we've had various hybridization events over time, and that obscures the breakaway points. But polar bears have changed very quickly from a brown terrestrial omnivore to a white marine carnivore. So that's one of the big things. When they shifted to the sea ice environment, they did that because there was an open space in an ecological sense, what we would call an ecological niche. And that space was basically being the predator of seals. And that that was a major find for this group because it's an incredibly energy rich source. One of the things that allows and one of the primary uh, changes, of course, is the color. And of course, if you're a a predator out in a white environment, you tend to match the background of of, uh, the substrate you're working in. And that's what bears it. They went from this brown color to a white color. Um, Associated with some of this higher energy intake, they also got bigger. So your average polar bear is bigger than your average grizzly bear. Um, So... Those are a couple of things, but also when you went from being an omnivore to a carnivore, there's other things that change. And of course, if we look at the claws of a polar bear, they're much more cat-like. They don't retract like a cat, but they're extremely sharp and highly curved, whereas the claws of a grizzly bear are much more adapted for digging, turning over logs, digging out uh, roots and things like that. So it's it's a very different sort of structure. There's other sort of more subtle things that have gone on. Um, the shape of their skull is elongated. Their eyes are a little bit higher up on their head. Uh, that's probably associated with swimming. Um, so there's a lot of these sorts of changes that have happened. If you look at the feet of a polar bear versus a grizzly bear, a uh, grizzly bear paw is, is basically devoid of hair, whereas a polar bear paw is well-furred, and that gives them traction, but it also keeps their feet warm. Um, because if you look at those two species, the grizzly bear is, of course, going to be going to sleep now. It's coming into winter. Polar bears are just sort of waking up and uh, from a summer of not feeding and getting ready to really enter their most active time of the year. So these two species, uh, closely related, but live almost opposite lifestyles. It's amazing how these two types of bears have changed in so many different ways based on the environments that they live in. Next, I wanted to know if polar bears had trouble finding food in the Arctic. There doesn't really seem to be much life there. Well, it's it's interesting. You know, the first time I went to the Arctic was in the uh, mid 80s and it was out on the sea ice and you get into these environments and you just think there's nothing living here. Um, you don't see anything. There's, you know, it's just snow and ice for as far as you can see. 
uh, were working from helicopters. And then the fellow I was working with, Ian Sterling, sort of the godfather of polar bears, um, had what's called an underwater microphone or a hydrophone. He drops it in the water. And all of a sudden, it's just, it's just this cacophony of noises. You've got bearded seals with this bizarre whistling sound. It sounds like, you know, like those old movies with a falling bomb, you know, like they go like that. And you've got these weird ethereal noises going on, these grunts from ring seals. And you can hear off in the distance some bowhead whales making noises. So in the Arctic, everything's happening under the ice. It's in the water. It is that marine environment. And so one way to think about these Arctic uh, ecosystems is that the sea ice is like the soil of a terrestrial ecosystem. So that sea ice, when it forms, it has it ejects the salt right from the water and it leaves these little tiny channels in the sea ice itself. And inside those um, little channels, there's a whole ecosystem of bacteria, viruses and then small invertebrates. But most importantly, that's where the primary productivity occurs. It's this ice algae that grows inside the ice and underneath the ice. That's the base of the Arctic food chain. So very quickly, we go from sort of this algae and little invertebrates, and then it's grazed on by these little shrimp-like anim animals, amphipods and copepods. And then it gets into this little fish called the polar cod, ugly little thing, but it's really important. Uh, and then it goes into the seals, and then those seals, of course, go into bears. Um, and the whole sort of rhythm of life in the Arctic is tied to fat. It doesn't matter what level of the ecosystem you're at, um, you have to have enough fat to survive those periods when food is less available. So of course, that happens right from these little shrimp-like animals to the cod, to the seals. And of course, one way to think about a polar bear is, is think about them as like a fat vacuum. They go around the Arctic, they kill seals, and then they rip them open. It's like a kid with an Oreo cookie. They peel them apart, scrape out the really good stuff, and then leave the rest. And that's really what polar bears do. They will, they will thrive off that fat layer. That really high energy content diet is what makes a polar bear possible. And the reason why these seals have so much fat is because it helps to keep them warm. Now, I can imagine it can get pretty lonely in the Arctic, so I wanted to know if polar bears interacted with each other besides just when they're mating. And you'll hear about that right after the break. The person that I want to recognize on this week's episode of Notable Figures in Science is Gertrude Elion, who was an American biochemist. Her parents were immigrants from Lithuania, and she was born in New York. She graduated with a degree in biochemistry from Hunter College, and her contributions are helping so many people to this day. After college, she joined the Burroughs Welcome Laboratories and helped to develop drugs that fight leukemia, autoimmune disorders, and many more diseases. She also oversaw the development of AZT, which was the first drug that was used to treat AIDS. Because of her accomplishments, she was awarded the National Medal of Science and was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1991. If you want to learn more about Gertrude Elian or this series, check out onwildlife.org. 
Okay, we're back. Let's hear about how polar bears interact with each other. Well, mating is a pretty important part if you're thinking about being a polar bear. Um, but from the context of their life history, I mean, it's interesting because female polar bears, once they sort of hit about five years of age, they're actually with cubs for the vast majority of their time. Uh, so there's only a brief window when they're not with cubs for most animals, uh, most individuals. And so what you get is that five years on, they have cubs, they're with them for about two and a half years. So those cubs stay with the mother and they're nursing through that whole time, really tight bond. And then the mother gets rid of her cubs. She's with a male for usually a couple of weeks, then she's pregnant, then she'll go into a den. And then sort of just around Christmas time, she'll give birth to cubs. And then in the springtime, head back out on the ice. Wow. So females spend a good majority of their lives with their family units. What about males? Adult males, um, it's interesting. They're, they're largely solitary. Um, they'll beat the heck out of each other during the breeding season in competition for feeding um, or access to females. The most intense fights are over females by far. I mean, they can break teeth and lose eyes and end up with massive wounds. It's, it's pretty dramatic. Um, and so in that context, though, in the season that's sort of like we're just coming to the end of it now, sort of the ice-free season in many parts of the Arctic, um, they can be as social as big puppies. It's amazing. But you get these huge males um, and you can have tons of them in a small area the size of, you know, your average house. Um, and they lie next to each other like dogs. Like they're just they just curl up next to each other and are quite social. Um and, and it's quite bizarre. You can see five, six of these big, huge males lying next to each other. Um, and it's, it's quite remarkable. Uh, we start to see a lot of play behavior that occurs. It's sort of ritualized fighting and wrestling. Um, it's all very good natured. Uh, you never see a, a bear get injured. And we think that sort of play behavior between males is probably a sort of a practice fighting. So they're learning how to interact when I really do have to fight for something that's important in an evolutionary context, like access to a female that's in breeding condition. That's really amazing. When you think about polar bears, you think about them being solitary, not coming together to hang out in groups. It's an interesting phenomenon because, you know, it's again deals with the ecological context of which the animals find themselves during this during the ice free period. Most of the bears come ashore and they're pretty fat. You know, the, the males have put on enough weight and they're really just kind of like really lounging on the beaches. They, they hit the coast. They stop. They don't usually go much further um, and they just lie around. So there's no competition for mates. There's no competition for food. Um, so, again, from an evolutionary perspective, you don't really have anything to gain from fighting uh, with another bear. It's, it's interesting when we come in to catch them, um, you can end up with sort of like a herd of polar bears all moving off together and they'll, they'll run shoulder to shoulder. And it's like, you know, it's, it, it, I hate to say it, it sounds like a bad cartoon, but it's like, you know, let's just get out of here and everybody agrees. We just run for the door sort of thing. But uh, you sometimes feel badly about disrupting their sort of, you know, social behavior, but they go back to it very quickly. Uh, they seem to tolerate scientists quite nicely. And that made me wonder, how do polar bears feel about interacting with humans? One of the things is, is bears have, have, you know, it's a bad word, but personality. 
so there are grumpy bears and there are, are skittish bears and there are curious bears. And so what you really get is this whole sort of spectrum of behavior. And, and it's, it's interesting because we sometimes go through when we, when we catch bears, we make notes about them. And, you know, I, I can remember a few bears. We make a note on the capture sheet that this was a really aggressive bear. And, and it's interesting because years later, one of those bears, we hadn't seen it for like, I think about 10 years. And then it showed up on the coast of Hudson Bay near the town of Churchill. And the game officers were trying to scare it away from the town. And it was having no part of it. It just put its head down and ran right into the front of the truck and put a big dent on the hood of the truck. And that was probably not a right thing to do because they, they actually made the decision right then and there that they couldn't deter the bear away. Um, and, and they ended up having to shoot it because it was just too dangerous. Uh, and it was trying to get into the town. And, and so, you know, in, in the context of individual bears, a lot of them don't like being around people. Um, but it depends on a lot of factors. Uh, mothers with cubs often get into trouble because the cubs are just too curious for their own good. Um, I can tell you a number of stories where, you know, you're looking at a mother and she's back and she's chuffing at the cubs, which is kind of like a warning, come back, come back. And the cubs just kind of meandering into a place where it probably shouldn't be going. Um, so you can get those sorts of situations. I think one of the biggest challenges uh, for human bear interactions is actually the issue of body condition. And so, you know, it depends on where a person lives, but if you live anywhere, you know, where bears live, black bears or grizzly bears, you know, if there's a berry crop failure up in the mountains, the bears come around people's uh, apple trees and their backyards around their garbage. Um, and so polar bears are not that much different. If they're not in good shape, they'll start to look for food. And quite often those foods and the smells that are brought about by, you know, people camping on the land or a small community, or perhaps somebody has their sled dogs staked out uh, and there's food smells, the bears come in. And that's one place where we get a lot of conflict. Um, and we're seeing more and more of those sorts of conflicts as bears spend longer periods on land with climate change. So climate change is really increasing the interactions between polar bears and people, which is bad for both of us. Now, polar bears are often thought of as the very top of the food chain, but are there any animals that would attempt to kill one? Their closest relative. We have several cases where grizzly bears have actually killed and consumed uh, polar bears. Um, now, their ranges don't overlap very much. You know, the grizzly bears are largely on land. The, the polar bears are typically out on the sea ice. Every so often, the grizzlies get out on the ice, and we've had cases of them killing uh, young polar bears. Um, grizzly bears tend to be much more aggressive than polar bears. Um, you know, it's something about, you know, when they moved out on the sea ice, the polar bears just adopted this zen-like behavior because they're so calm compared to grizzly bears. Um, and, and in those places where they do sometimes show up together, like on the north coast of Alaska, around um, the, the local people there, the Inupiat hunt bowhead whales, they leave the remains on land and grizzly bears and polar bears come in to feed on them. In those situations, the grizzly bears rule. The you know they're not interested in killing polar bears there because there's so much whale meat and blubber to eat that they don't need to. Uh, but 
we have seen this sort of event in, in some places. So grizzly bears are on that list of potential threats. Um, the other one we hypothesize about more or less is that every so often killer whales probably grab the occasional swimming polar bear. Um, now, again, those are two species that probably don't interact very often, mainly because killer whales have this big dorsal fin that keeps them out of the sea ice. They don't like to go into the heavy ice and the bears tend to be in the heavier ice. Um, but there have been stories, local people suggesting that there have been some cases where they thought that a bear had been killed by, um, by a killer whale, probably swimming, probably pretty uncommon. The last of the, of the potential dangers being a polar bear um, would actually be uh, walrus. Uh, polar bears don't prey much on walrus, but every so often, you know, they, they will go after the calves quite regularly. Um, and every so often we get uh, evidence that uh, a bear has been killed or at least seriously enough injured by being stabbed by a walrus tusk. Um, and so there are some, again, some minor events, but you know, those are so, so rare. Um, it doesn't happen very often. Um, the last thing that probably threatens a polar bear is other polar bears. Oddly enough, we get infanticide, so adult males killing cubs, um, and sometimes even adult males killing females, usually because um, there's some sort of nutritional stress issue going on. So that's sort of the suite of characters. Yeah, it's not all peaches and cream being a polar bear. And as always, I wanted to know what type of impact these animals could have on the ecosystems that they live in. So they're the top predator in these ecosystems. So they definitely have a, a top-down effect uh, on the food web. So they're really eating a lot of seals in these areas. And of course, that translates down to fewer seals. And of course, the seals are consuming the fish. Now, it raises the question, if you took polar bears out, what would happen? We'd probably have more seals. We'd probably have fewer fishes. You know, ecosystems tend to resort themselves as species come and go over long periods of time. One of the challenges, of course, is we're changing these Arctic ecosystems very, very quickly. But, you know, we don't really have a good handle on the role of a polar bear in these ecosystems. We know what they do, what they eat, but the challenge is, is that we don't have a good understanding of the dynamics and abundance of their prey, the ring seals and the bearded seals that really form the bread and butter of the polar bear diet. Um, we really don't have good estimates on their abundance or trajectories over time. So we can make some basic uh, sense of what's going on, but you know we don't have any experiments yet where we took polar bears out, then we saw you know seals just ballooned in abundance. We don't have that type of data. I can imagine that data would be pretty hard to get. Polar bears are also listed as vulnerable by the IUCN. Let's hear about some of the problems that they're facing. It is that habitat loss issue, and that is the number one threat to polar bears across their range. And, and again, it, we've got 19 different populations of polar bears across the Arctic. Um, and so we've got 19 different scenarios playing out over time. And so some of these ecosystems are losing sea ice at incredible rates. So we talk about the ice-free period. And I, where I worked in the Svalbard area uh, between sort of northern Norway and, and um, 
Western Russia and the Barents Sea ecosystem, that area is losing about 30 days of sea ice cover per decade. So, and that's been going on now for several decades. And so at some point, we just lose too much sea ice and the polar bears can't persist in that area. So at that level, we would have a local extirpation event or a local extinction event. And so our concern is that by mid-century, those populations that are losing sea ice the fastest will blink out first. Um, Currently, we don't have an estimate that they would go extinct as a species. Um, Most of our projections of sea ice and polar bears go out to about the end of this century. And at that level, we still think at the high Arctic in Canada and in northern Greenland that there will still be enough sea ice to maintain uh, polar bears in the wild. So that's kind of the good news, bad news. We're going to lose them from a lot of their range. But the good news is they're not going to disappear from everywhere And so that does give us hope that if we're able to deal with climate change uh, and either reduce or uh, eventually remove carbon um, dioxide from the air, we could actually cool the planet back to where it should be. And that would allow sea ice to reform. And if we've got this nucleus of bears in the wild, they could re-expand and come back to those areas that they lost. But we're talking hundreds or thousands of years for that sort of uh, dynamic to play out. Uh, in the shorter term, we just have to deal with greenhouse gases because the more we control them, um, the less quickly we're going to lose uh, polar bear habitat. I'm sure many of you out there want to know what the average person can do to help. Here's what Andrew had to say about that. You know, there, there are lots of good sources um, that are out there. I wrote a book in 2012. It's a really good overview of polar bear ecology. Um, I don't worry, I'm not going to get rich if you buy a copy. Your library probably has one. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a good way to get a good background. There's several good books on polar bears out there. Um, and that's one thing. There's, there's a group, I'm a volunteer advisor for Polar Bears International, which is a nonprofit group that is dedicated to the conservation and education about polar bears, a, a good fact-based organization. Um, The World Wildlife Fund also has some very good resources, another group I've worked with over time. And, you know, it's it's there's a lot of good information on the Internet. There's also a lot of misinformation or misleading information. So one of the challenges that happened, of course, is polar bears emerged as an icon of climate change. Um, A lot of the climate change deniers figured that if they could topple the polar bear science and climate change argument down, um, then um, they could basically refute climate change. It didn't. I mean, it was a nonsensical idea, but there is a lot of confusion in, in the public in general about polar bears and their status. It's, it's again, we will see a transition. We're already actually seeing it in many parts of the Arctic. So as the sea ice is disappearing, um, particularly in, in eastern Canada, there's really good data on what's happened with killer whale numbers. As the sea ice has gone down, the number of killer whales in the Arctic has gone straight up. 
So again, what we're seeing is a shift in ecosystems over time. And as the sea ice retracts, what's really happening is the species from the North Atlantic and the North Pacific are just moving northward. And that's one of the same things that we see in other areas, in terrestrial uh, areas, is that as the climate warms, species move northward. In mountainous areas, they tend to go up the mountains to find the appropriate ecological conditions to thrive. So, you know, over longer periods of time, uh, we will see a, a very, very different ecosystem. There'll still be a functioning ecosystem. It just won't contain polar bears in much of the areas that we currently have them. Polar bears are such amazing animals, and Andrew has given me hope for their populations in the future. I want to thank him again for coming on because I really learned so much from him. There are also some great organizations that are helping polar bears right now that you should definitely go check out. There's the IUCN Polar Bear Specialist Group, which Andrew is a member of, and the World Wildlife Fund. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of polar bears. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife and on TikTok at onwildlife. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for another awesome episode. And that's On Wildlife. listening to On Wildlife with Alex Ray. On Wildlife provides general educational information on various topics as a public service, which should not be construed as professional, financial, real estate, tax, or legal advice. These are our personal opinions only. Please refer to our full disclaimer policy on our website for full details.